0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Galatians chapter 3 is where I'd love for you to open your Bible, and then I'll invite our morning readers up uh, to read to you from Galatians chapter 3.
1: Thank you, Pastor Trevor, for this opportunity. Um, I'll be speaking from uh, Galatians three, one through fourteen. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should o- not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want you to learn. From this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit are you now being made perfect by the flesh have you suffered so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain therefore he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith just as abraham believed god and it was accounted to him for righteousness therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of abraham and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham before beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we may receive the promise of the Spirit through faith.
0: February the 9th of 2009 was a day that changed the world. Like really, the the world will really never be the same on the other side of it. I'm, I'm sure it's a day that you remember that sticks out in your memory. February the 9th, 2009. I mean, every generation has very specific dates that leave a measurable impact on life as we know it, that leaves a distinct memory even of where we were when that event in history took place. It's maybe a generation before my own that would remember a date in December. They'd remember a specific date, December the 7th in 1941. They could tell you where they were when they heard the news of the attack on Pearl Harbor. It's those of us who, in the words of my children, were born in the 1900s who remember September the 11th in 2001 and could tell you where we were when we saw and heard the news. It's our children one day who will grow up and say, or my young children, they'll, they'll point to a date on a calendar, March 2020, when life forever changed. And how could we forget? February the 9th of 2009. In fact, nearly half the world's population felt its impact. Some people estimate as much as three and a half billion people felt the impact of that day that started a massive cultural shift. February the 9th, 2009, some of you are looking a bit confused, was the day that Facebook introduced the like button. Oh, laugh it up. But up until that moment, when you think about it, there were digital networking sites that were made available to us for us to share some thoughts or maybe the latest photo or even simply a description of what we were doing or what errand we were running. But then the like button was introduced and social networks instantly shifted to a social media platform. That's what we now call them. They're a platform. We recognize what they are. They are a place where we can go to present a curated version of ourselves for the approval and applause of other people. We are there existing on a platform to perform. According to social psychologist Jonathan Haid, writing in The Atlantic, he said this, he said, Something went terribly wrong very suddenly. Authentic and meaningful connections no longer mattered. They were replaced by performative interaction designed to attract the most likes, the most retweets, and the most shares. You see, here's the thing. We've monetized our presence on these virtual platforms, and that happened long before YouTube started signing checks and sending them out based on viewership. No, we monetized it with our social currency and our self-worth being inseparably tied to the almighty like button that was introduced back on February the 9th of 2009. Now, here's the reality that shifted as social media platforms grew then in use and in popularity, what we began to realize is that nothing in life was private anymore. That everything that happened was no longer had the opportunity to be really done in obscurity. Everything that happened felt like it was done in front of an audience who was viewing it to decide and to judge whether or not they approved or disapproved. This last week, I was driving my eight-year-old son Keegan home in the evening, and he pulled up, as we parked next to a car at a stopped light, he started monologuing in the back seat, and when I turned and looked his direction, I hear him saying, like, follow, subscribe, just got back from my trip to the East Coast, and as he's talking, I realize he's looking out the window to the car next to us where a woman is live streaming her evening commute home from work. Because the world just has to know how her day went and, and needs the opportunity to approve of her thoughts and of her choice of a route to get back to her house. Even my eight-year-old son saw the comedy and why in the world would we think that we need the approval of others in every single area of our life? But it's an inescapable reality because everyone is traveling. We, we realize we can't live in seclusion. We can't have a private moment anymore because everyone is traveling With a global connection in their pocket, it's an HD camera with a 4G connection that places your every move on a stage and a platform for the world to judge. The internet is seen singing now the old police song to us that every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Oh, can't you see you belong to me? The answer, unfortunately, is not as simple as, well, just get off the social media platform, although that might be good and useful advice for some of us. But here's why that's not the simple answer. Because the real inescapable reality is that in our modern culture, we are surrounded by people who have been trained and weaponized to judge each other over every detail of their life. We are constantly now feeling the pressure to place our best foot forward for others to judge if they approve or disapprove of us. We're constantly finding ourselves feeling the the pressure to earn their approval, and the world is beginning to agree that it's exhausting and it's not worth it. Now, I hope I haven't lost you in my introduction this morning. Because I'm beginning our time together this morning by by starting the discussion this way, because I want you to see how ingrained it is in us, how ingrained effort and earning are inside of each of us. Because our kids aren't the only one who receive a grade, a letter grade on their performance every quarter. No, society, we're starting to realize, is judging and grading all of us, which creates an enormous amount of pressure for us to live under as modern people. But against that really bleak and exhausting background that so many of us find ourselves living in, the beauty of God's gospel of grace flashes and strikes us like a lightning bolt from heaven, where we're conditioned to think of every relationship we have of earning through effort, because that's how things work in our world, even on a digital platform, but what we find in grace is that it's not at all how things work with God. That God doesn't keep score, He keeps promises. That grace is His unmerited favor given to us that we haven't earned nor deserved, and He hasn't asked us to. But it's such a foreign concept. It's like Superman or Kryptonite entering our atmosphere from some otherworldly existence because these things like grace don't exist in human relationships. There's not even room for it in our thinking, which so pollutes then the way that we begin to relate to God. You see, we've been conditioned for a broken view of even our own relationship with Jesus that leaves very little room for grace. But that's what we've been studying in the book of Galatians is that Paul is reaching into a culture much like ours that has external pressures, and yes, we have it too, but also has an internal legalist whose voice is awfully loud at times. And he's asking them to slow down and reconsider what they've made their faith in Jesus into, because if they've squeezed out room for grace, then they've missed it altogether. So for today, the message of this section of Scripture, and Miss Ruth, you can put the quote up on the screen, the message of this section of Scripture we're going to walk through together is that you were justified by God's grace, and you are now being sanctified by God's grace. And he's doing that because Christ graciously took your place under the law and the curse of God. This is really our outline for, the, for our morning together. We'll look at three things. First, that you were justified by God's grace. And then a second thing, that you are now being sanctified by his grace. And that that is possible because Christ graciously took your place under the law and the curse of God. So the first thing is, Paul reiterates here that you were justified by grace. If you're a note taker, write it down, that I was justified by grace. We have to start with just answering the question, well, what is justification? And it's something that we are introduced to, at least this word was something we are introduced to in last week's message, that Mike Neglia came and masterfully walked us through the previous passage of Scripture from Galatians. But it takes place in his center stage throughout the whole of the book, this idea of justification, because justification is a central theme in Paul's letter. There's a Greek linguist by the name of Dr. Weiss, and I'll spare you his beautiful uh, but lengthy explanation of what justification means, and just tell you that he boils it down to being a legal and historically a judicial term that was used, that simply means, translated into English, that we have been declared righteous. It means to legally And judicially be declared righteous. And speaking of justification, in verse 8, Paul makes this very mysterious statement that the scriptures foresaw something. That's a weird thought, isn't it? That the scriptures, you think of the text of the book, that the scriptures foresaw something. He's writing about the scriptures as if he's describing a living, breathing person because he viewed the scriptures as the living God actively speaking. So what did the scriptures foresee? Well, he said it, verse 8, the second half of it, that the just, I'm sorry, that God would justify the Gentile world, that he would declare them right and righteous by faith. What did the scriptures foresee? The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentile world by faith, not through, look at verse 11, not through the keeping of the law but that no one, quoting verse 11, is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. If you don't know that little saying, that little statement, the just shall live by faith, then I hope it becomes a wonderful companion to you from today until the rest of your life, all the way through the rest of your life, that the just shall live by faith. Human nature and experience will tell you that you have to work to earn the approval and favor of others, that the just, the justified are those who have worked harder, that the just, the justified are the ones who have worked through their effort to earn that status in the minds and eyes of people in society. But the just shall live by faith. We'd expect that if we are to have the favor of God, we'd have to earn the favor of God through the keeping of the law which is what the false teachers had come in, Paul says, bewitching the Galatians into thinking. However, the scriptures tell us that the favor of God, our being right and righteous in his sight, is something that we receive. Hear that, something we receive by faith, not something that is earned through human effort. You actually see this, if you think about it, as a biblical theme. This isn't some new concept that all of a sudden Paul's like, I know you've been thinking all along that the whole of the book was telling you, obey the laws of God, and then you'll be right and righteous in his sight and have his favor. And then all of a sudden he like makes a U-turn. He's like, actually, I'm seeing it different now. Things have changed, and the just shall live by faith. No, he's going to show you right here. This is a biblical theme. This amazing otherworldly reality is first seen in the book of Genesis. It's then sung about in the Psalms. And then God will speak it clearly through an ancient prophet. His name was Habakkuk. And in chapter 2, verse 4, God instructs the prophet to write the vision that God spoke to him, and it included this statement that God made to his people that the just, the righteous, they shall live by faith. Paul quotes that statement here in Galatians. He will also quote it in the book of Hebrews and Romans, leaving modern scholars to refer to Hebrews, Romans, and Galatians as the great trilogy of Paul that is writing to open up and to expose, to exposit what the prophet Habakkuk was saying there when he made the statement in confidence that the just shall live by faith. And here in Galatians, what Paul's doing throughout the book, think of it this way, Paul will expose the roots of Habakkuk's theological statement, which is his confidence, Habakkuk's confidence, that this is how God has always worked and functioned, beginning all the way back with the father of the faith himself, Abraham. In fact, verse 6 is quoting from Genesis 15. And he, speaking of Abraham, believed in Yahweh, and he accounted, it's he imputed He reckoned, he credited to Abraham for righteousness. It says that Abraham believed God, believed the promise of God to him. And because of that, it was accounted to him for righteousness. That Greek word, accounted, is found all over ancient papyri in in the the Eastern world, in the Bible lands, as they're unearthing these ancient pieces of papyri. And what's written there, they're finding, is business accounting documents where someone is using this term that that they are accounting. Someone is requesting that a portion of their wealth be transferred to another person's account so that they had the capacity to make a purchase, that it would be accounted to them, that my wealth would be accounted, would be transferred to them so that they could make this purchase, so that they could move forward with this project on my behalf. It's a term that was used often, this accounting term. Mike's illustration from last week should be coming into your mind of the Amazon gift cards he pulled out of his pocket that were purchased with grandma and grandpa's wealth, and were handed over to their grandchildren so that they had access to what had been transferred to those cards. Someone else's, someone else's work, uh, hard work and their wealth transferred and given to them, accounted to them, so that they could swipe the card and use it as they saw fit. Now, slow down for a moment and think through this with me. If someone then were to ask you, Well, how is a person made right with God? What do you have to do to be right with God? What would you tell them? How would you answer that? Because Paul's saying here that the scripture has always been clear that you cannot do anything to earn God's favor or right standing with him, but that you must instead receive, not earn, but receive the gracious gift of his unmerited favor by faith. Galatians 3, six. just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, it's like a, a bank transfer of funds into his account. He is now accounted righteous. Why? Because he believed. Now, please remember, this was before Abraham would be circumcised. This is even 430 years before the law would be given to the people of God, which makes it clear to you then that circumcision won't make you pleasing to God. That the keeping of the law won't make you pleasing to God, that following these cultural standards won't make you pleasing to God, because Abraham predates this. Paul is making it clear that this is something God has always been doing. This is not some new thing. God has always been justifying people, accounting righteousness to them because of their simple faith in Him. Guys, this isn't irrelevant to us. It's not irrelevant to us at all, because this is the most important question every person has in life. The most important question is, do you have right standing with God? Now, it's a new year. You might be thinking of tax time and like, I'm more concerned about right standing with the IRS because the implications are huge. They can be. I realize that you might be more concerned this morning about your right standing with your partner, with your spouse or maybe with, with your business partner, or even with your own children. But please hear me. This is the most important question for us to answer. Do I have right standing with God? Because this alone is an eternal question. So do you have right standing with God? Oh no, No, don't let your mind go to your church attendance record. Or to you getting a gold star because of your rhythm and pattern of of offering a quiet little prayer before every meal. Don't even think or feel motivated then to, to write an extra check and drop it in the box on your way out. No, don't think that way. Because Abraham merely believed God and it was accounted to him. It was transferred to him. Right Standing with God was not accomplished by him. It was accounted to him. Do you see the difference? It was not accomplished by him, it was accounted to him. I cannot accomplish my righteousness. Sure, I can try by comparison, but let's be honest, my comparison game is garbage. Because the only people I'll compare myself to is the people I can look for and find and say, I think you're worse than me. And then I feel a little bit better about myself. But if I'm gonna play the comparison game, my comparison is the law, and it's perfect. And if I'm gonna compare myself against the law, I'm crushed and hopeless until the law serves its purpose to point me forward to Jesus. Listen, be clear that God demonstrated right from the beginning with Abraham, the father of the faith himself, that this is not accomplished righteousness that we're after. It will only be accounted righteousness, or another way we'd say it is imputed or transferred righteousness. If you've been reading through the one-year Bible with us, there's probably some imagery that's coming to mind, because just a few weeks ago, we read through this passage together in Genesis 15, where God makes the promise to Abraham that your descendants, Abraham, will be as numerous as the innumerable stars in the sky, and and that if, if you believe me, and Abraham did, believed Yahweh, and in that moment, because he believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. God saw him as right and righteous because of his simple faith that God would do what he was promising to do in that moment. But think back, think back to that scene, but remember the moment right after it. God makes the promise and then Abraham will go off to prepare for the covenant agreement that will be made between the two of them. And it involves a bunch of animals that will be taken and cut in two and laid open. And traditionally what would happen is that you, if you were making a a public promise, a covenant with someone else, you would walk back and forth through those open dead carcasses, a bloody mess, now covered in their blood from walking through them. The stench and the scene and everything about it, the reason you're doing it and making that public promise there is you're making a statement. May God do this to me if I break my side of the deal. Oh, the pressure that Abraham is feeling, that he has to uphold his, his side of the bargain with God if he's gonna be right with him. But don't you remember the scene that as he waits in the heat of the day, a bunch of vultures begin circling and he's waiting for God to show up and the vultures begin descending on the sacrifices that Abraham's prepared. And he's chasing them away until he's so exhausted that once he had exhausted his own efforts, he falls into a deep sleep and then God shows up think of that imagery. To me, this is so cool. That once man exhausted his own effort and could no longer try, God said, cool, I'll show up now. I'll make a one-sided promise. I'll walk through the blood of of these sacrifices. God himself was willing to say, fine, let this happen to me if I break my side of the deal, but I'm not letting you make a your side of the deal. Because this is not, this is not worked for righteousness. No, 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 this is not accomplished righteousness. This will be so very different from that. This will be accounted as righteous. This is a one-sided agreement. I will wait until man has exhausted his own efforts for me to step in and make the deal. What a picture of the gospel. When it says here in verse 8 that the gospel was preached to Abraham, don't you see on that day how God demonstrated how the gospel would work right at the beginning of the story? Oh, be clear that God demonstrated right from the beginning with Abraham, the father of the faith, that it is not accomplished righteousness. No, it is accounted righteousness that we are after. Remember, accounted, that mathematical term to reckon. It's like you taking the cat or the, excuse me, the paycheck from your employer, taking it to the bank and cashing the check. They are now accounting to you the money from your employer's account. It is transferred now to you. That money has been reckoned to your account. It's credited to you. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it is credited and accounted to me. It's transferred to my account. And the beauty is that Jesus' account was perfect, that his life was sinless, that his every deed and action was wonderful, 2 Corinthians five twenty one says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. My friends, the gospel is clear: you can have your own account and gold chart. Star star. Excuse me, the gospel is clear that you can have your own account and gold star chart, or you can have Jesus's, but you can't have both. You can have your own account and gold star chart, or you can have Jesus's, but you can't have both of them. My friends, God's accounting is not pretending. It's not him closing his eyes and giving another chance. That's not it at all. It's not pretending. It is accounting on behalf of Jesus's performance. And that means I am fully accepted now, fully embraced because of Jesus's performance on my behalf. Oh, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He did not merely believe in God. No, he believed God, it says. He trusted in God. He put his full weight on God. He didn't merely believe that God was there or present. You see, there's a difference in believing in the existence or reality of something. The the difference between that and putting your trust in it is monumental. It's massive. There's an old story of a French tightrope walker who went to Niagara Falls that's gotten a lot of mileage out of it from preachers, and forgive me for using it yet again. But there's a reason, because it's a great illustration of this. It's a true story that took place a century and a half ago, where a a French... uh, Performer who was great at walking a good tightrope would walk across a cable across Niagara Falls, and he kept coming back to perform it again and again. But each time he needed to kind of up the ante because people were no longer impressed just by a guy who could walk the tightrope. And so soon it began, or as soon it became, him like pushing a barrel in front of him. It was him taking a flask in his pocket. If you've never read the stories, it's very funny because he gets out into the middle of it, he'll empty the flask and then walk the second half of it until finally he asked the crowd, "Who believes I could carry a?" man upon my back and crossed Niagara Falls. Now, many people cheered, but only one man stood forward. And there was a man who stepped forward and climbed onto his back, and the man said to him, the tightrope walker, you are no longer, and he quoted to him his name, he said, you are now, and quoted his own name, you are now a part of my body. You, you may not help this in any way. You must just ease your body and allow it to become one with me so that I can carry you across from here. That is what belief in God looks like. Not just looking and saying, sure, I believe that you could carry someone across there. Oh no, I believe enough that I'm willing to get on your back and rest from all of my work, rest from all of my trying, become just united with you and say, Jesus, I won't even tense a muscle. I'm going to allow you to walk me across this tight rope. Listen, if someone were to ask you, how is a person made right with God? What do you have to do to be right with God? What would you tell them? How would you respond to them? You can respond and tell them the same way that Abraham did. That Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him, reckoned to him for righteousness, for right standing with God. You see, Abraham and the Old Testament saints, they would look forward to the fulfillment of a promise that would come and his name, heaven's deliverer, his name would be Jesus. But for us today, we look back to the fulfillment of that promise. We look back to a cross and an empty tomb. Oh, you were justified by grace, is Paul's point here. But there's a second thought he's communicating here, and it's this. It's that you are being actively sanctified by his grace. Again, let's just start then by asking the question, what is sanctification? Remember, justification is that instant change, that that instant change in status and standing because someone in authority declared us righteous in an instant. Jesus accounted his righteousness to us, and the Father in that moment stepped forward and declared us righteous. Jesus took everything that was wrong and sinful and broken and unrighteous about me and he paid for it and at the same time gave everything that was good and right and righteous about him and transferred that to my account and I please God now because of it. It really is like a bank account. Think back to your life as a college student. Most of us share some things in common regardless of where we went. We all lived knowing that the looming reality of a zero balance and then of a negative balance, and then of the the fees that would be incurred because we went negative and upside down unintentionally. Listen, my accounts, in the eyes of God, they were negative. But his death paid for the penalty. It brought my balance back to zero. But do you understand that his perfect life did something in addition to that? You see, his perfect life gave something in addition to that. It placed credit and merit into my account in the eyes of God so that now now I have an inexhaustible amount as my balance. I now have the favor and pleasure of God. It's not just that I don't owe God anymore. It's that I please God now. I'm righteous in his sight. You see, Jesus took my broken identity all the way down to my sin and my shame, even the curse of God itself upon my rebellion. And when he did that, in exchange, I was given his identity, the identity of the Prince of Heaven, his wealth, his home, his authority, his sonship was what I was given, what was transferred to me. You see, I, I have been justified past tense in an instant. I've been made and declared righteous in the sight of God. But sanctification, sanctification is the process then of living into that new identity, not of earning or deserving the new identity, but of being reshaped and transformed by it. In scripture, sanctification from the Old Testament to the New, it speaks of something being set apart. And it always speaks of something being set apart to God for a special purpose. Justification, remember, in an instant. God declares you righteous when you have faith to get into the barrel or onto his back and allow him to walk you across the wire. But sanctification, it happens as a process. The Holy Spirit begins to work in your life, transforming you from the inside out, changing not just your thinking and actions, he changes your affections. You begin to, to feel and think and act more and more like Jesus justification it's legal sanctification it's transformational it can be said this way as a follower of jesus i have been past tense justified and i am being in the present active tense sanctified by jesus so here's your million dollar question for the day how then do i grow and move forward in the process of my sanctification of becoming more and more like Jesus. So get out a pen and get ready to make a list. I have 73 somewhat simple, mostly challenging things for you to try to do to further the process of your sanctification. You know I'm joking because I only have 17 essential things that you must do if you want to be sanctified and made more into the image of Jesus and push forward into growth in Now, some of you know I'm still joking. There are only five things that you absolutely have to do if you want to work hard to become more like Jesus. It's so funny, isn't it, that in our minds, that's what we actually want. It almost feels like it provides security for us because this is how the world system works. Give me the like button, right? Like, Can't I do something for someone else outside of me to say this is what I approve of? Come on, give me something predictable. Give me something I can accomplish, because that's what we're used to. But that's not at all what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. It's not accomplished righteousness. It's accounted to us. You see, this is the mentality that Paul is trying to combat, this mentality of a to-do list, to get near to God and to earn and deserve his favor. Again, look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or was it by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect? Other translation, are you now going to become completed by the works of your flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and the one who worked miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or was it by the hearing of faith? Do you see that he's pointing them back to the grace of God that will continue to bring progress in their relationship with God as God is transforming them more and more into the image of Christ? My friends, works-based righteousness, it's idolatrous blasphemy. I am profaning God and his goodness towards me and Christ, making myself and my own merit what I believe is worthy of praise if I'm bypassing what Jesus has done for me as a sacrifice. Legalism rejects and blasphemes Christ louder than hedonism. Hedonism says, I don't need Christ for what does it matter how I live and pleasure's all I'm after anyway. Anyway. But legalism says, I don't need him, for I live so well and good apart from him. Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians, which I have just loved, it's been so good for my own heart, in fact, so good, we added it to our resource table this week. So when you go out back and you see our resource table, there's a little Luther commentary. It's the abridged version. It's the one that I'm reading too. It's not just you. It's the 600 pages was a little intimidating. The hundred and change, less intimidating. I'd encourage you to give some thought to ordering it and just walking through Galatians with Luther. It's been so good for my own heart. But this is what he said. He said, I cannot tell you in words how criminal it is to seek righteousness before God without faith in Christ by the works of the law. It is an abomination standing in the holy place. It deposes the creator and defies the creature. My friends, this passage, it's here to clearly teach us that God's rescuing grace. It's not some new thing. Look back to Abraham. It's always been this way. Nor is it to be seen by you as some old thing in the rear view mirror that you needed in the past to be saved, but is now bypassed as you strive and work to be sanctified and set apart for God. No, grace is a constant thing that stands forever because Christ took on the curse of the law in your place. We could say it really simply, that grace didn't get me out of hell so that I could now try to be good and work hard to earn God's favor and blessing in life. That's not what grace was for. If that's how you live and think, then Paul tells you that you've been swindled here, that you've foolishly been dragged away from grace and placed back underneath the crushing weight of law. You want to know how a person is sanctified? It's that they receive the grace of God and they yield to the work of God's Spirit in their life. They, They will be sanctified in the same way that they were justified. Someone is justified and rescued in the first place by simply receiving the grace of God and yielding to the work of the Spirit. It's receiving God and throwing myself into his arms and allowing him to walk me across the line. Listen, as I yield to the Holy Spirit's work in my life, there will be a transformation that takes place and a death to myself as new life begins to take hold of me. And yes, I have to be a willing uh, a participant in this process of sanctification. If I am not willing to allow God to transform my life, then I am resisting his transforming work. But make no mistake, it is his gracious work to transform me, not my own. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, be confident of this very thing that he who began the work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, therefore, my beloved, he said, work out, not work for, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will, that's to desire, and to do for his good pleasure. As it's been said in our series in Galatians, grace is both the gateway that we enter through and the pathway that we will forever continue upon all the way to heaven to be with Jesus. The problem is we found that for many of us, we are orthodox in doctrine, but we are legalists in practice. Because so many of us have a good little legalist living inside of us, warring against the things of the Spirit. The law is really great for what it does but we have to be clear on what it does, because it doesn't justify me, nor is it where I go to earn brownie points. It exposes me, and it exposes my need for Jesus and exposing my brokenness in sin. And so if you depend on what you do in order to feel confident that you can approach God because you now have his favor, then you're saying that Jesus didn't need to die because you can earn what he gave. Think about what Paul's saying here. He says you receive the Holy Spirit by simple faith and having begun in the Spirit, will you now be made perfect by the works of your flesh, by your effort to earn, to earn and deserve through the works of the law? So how will you grow? How will you grow in your relationship with Jesus? Will it be by earning and deserving or by believing and receiving? You see, the scripture asks us, are you going to go about this, not by faith, but by the trusting in your own obedience and effort to earn and deserve God's favor and blessing, if that is how you think? That today as a follower of Jesus, that when you're good, God will bless you. But when you're bad or, or fail to hold up your side of the bargain or promise, or have failed to read scripture every day this week, or failed to pray as much as you have, or failed to take thoughts captive, that God now is ready to curse you that all of this is based on your performance, your performance to earn his favor, that you need to step back and recognize that you've placed yourself back into the system of the law, not of grace, not of believing and receiving his favor. We're guilty of doing what he said at the beginning of the letter to the Galatians. You remember chapter one, verse seven, where he said that they perverted the gospel. Remember, it means to reverse it. They reversed the impact, the life-giving impact of the gospel by reversing its order. The order of the gospel is that he accepts us, therefore we respond and follow him. To reverse that order is that I must give something to God so that he will respond and give something to me. That is the reversal, the perversion of the gospel. My friends, my enemy, the devil, can't keep me from being saved once I believe by faith but he will certainly try to make me think that I'll grow and mature and experience the favor of God as a result of my effort and earning of his favor. Is your day-to-day Christian experience about earning and deserving or simply about believing and receiving and rejoicing? Is your life marked by by beautiful peace and freedom, God's grace that he's provided for us, or is your life marred by miserable pressure that you carry? Don't misunderstand me. It's not legalistic to be obedient. It is legalistic to think that your obedience makes you more acceptable to God, more approved by him, more deserving of his favor and blessing in your life. If all of this is true, do you see something here? Do you see how offensive the gospel is? It offends our pride. It tells me that I need to be rescued, making it clear that I can't rescue myself. And when I'm rescued, I can't take credit at all for it. The gospel, it doesn't just offend my pride, it offends my wisdom. I mean, look at God entering humanity's plight and and then embracing our weakness and our shame by eventually being stripped naked and placed on a tree. We would never in our wisdom have come up with a plan like this to rescue humanity and begin the reign of God again through those means. It offends our wisdom. The gospel offends us so thoroughly because it clearly shows us that we have a deep and urgent need that we cannot meet or earn or fix on our own. Oh, it's offensive, but it's beautifully life-giving. And it's made possible because of what Jesus would do for us. Because Jesus would take the curse of God on our behalf. And this is where we finish. That yes, I've been justified by grace, and yes, I am being sanctified by that same grace. And that is possible because Christ graciously took your place under the law and the curse of God. My friends, there is no such thing as a balance between law and grace. There is no middle ground. When it comes to law versus grace, God is not in balance. No, God has provided a substitute that came and placed himself under the law so that we can now be the recipients of his incredible grace freed from the crushing weight of the law. Oh, but Trevor, hang on. Doesn't his grace then leave the door open for abuse? Absolutely. Something we'll talk about next week, but not until next week. But here's where we finish. It's these last two verses in our section today. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. If you want to, you can close your Bible, because I just want you to picture and think back. Because your mind as you read that passage of Scripture is meant to go backwards to something that Moses had penned in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, it's God instructing his people, and one of the things he instructs them in verse 23 is that they are to quickly bury the bodies of those who, because of the severity of their crime, had faced capital punishment. They had been executed. That you should quickly bury their bodies because God said of those individuals, who'd be hung from the tree facing the death penalty, that they were cursed, that the law had pronounced them cursed by the community and God themselves when they had merited, their crime had merited the ending of their life to eradicate them and their evil from society. And think, when Christ took my sin upon himself, he took with it the guilt, the shame, the severe punishment that it earned and deserved, and the curse that comes with it. The Hebrew word there, cursed, the root word there is vilification, to be made the enemy. That Christ in that moment on the cross would be made the enemy of the Father. Jesus would be treated as an enemy so that I could be welcomed as a son. Yes, the statement that Christ became a a curse is meant to take our minds back to something Moses had written in the book of Deuteronomy, but it's also meant to call to remembrance something that Moses did while wandering through the wilderness with the children of Israel. It's found in the book of Numbers in chapter 21, where the people have once again rebelled against God, and judgment would come, this time in the form of poisonous snakes. You probably remember this story. It's chaos, as people are being bit, and and people are now dropping dead because everyone who's been bit has been injected with a venom that's a sentence of death. And so the whole of the community is terrified and begin to cry out to God for mercy. And mercy is what they will receive. And the mercy they receive comes in the form of a serpent. Do you remember this? Where Moses fashions a bronze serpent around a pole And then promises that everyone who looks upon it in faith is spared from the curse of the serpent's venom. Think this through. Men will be spared from the curse that the serpent injected. They'll be freed from its deadly venom that was already a death sentence in their body when men looked in faith on a serpent. It's such an odd thing. Of all the things to rescue them it's the sign of the curse itself is the way that they'd have to look the direction they'd have to look in hope and in faith if they looked at the curse and they looked at all that was atrocious and awful and evil and heinous about it then they could be spared it makes no sense be freed from the curse by looking at the depiction and the the embodiment of the curse it doesn't make sense to us especially if you know your bible and you think back to how the book began because it began with evil itself being personified in the form of a serpent And then that serpent, the devil, injecting its venom, a death sentence, into all of humanity so that all of us live with the sentence of death, a broken, sinful, fallen nature where we're no longer united with God, where God himself had pronounced the serpent cursed at the end of that scene early in Genesis' story. But now in Moses' story, they're saying, look to the snake, look to the cursed one, and the the power of the curse will be lifted from you. It makes no sense until Jesus comes where in John's Gospel, chapter 3, Jesus would say, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What a picture, what a portrait of Jesus, of God's mercy that was all the while pointing ahead to Jesus, lifted up on the cross, the one that we would esteem as the cursed of God, Isaiah would say. Jesus, who would take our sin and with it the the death sentence we deserved, who would become as the serpent, he would become the cursed of God in order to rescue us, to free us from the power of the curse when we look his direction in faith. My friends, you were justified. You are being sanctified because Christ graciously took your place under the law and under the curse of God. Jesus ransomed us from the wrath of God, which means that we don't have to fear his condemnation if we trust in Christ alone as our ransom. And in ransoming us from God's wrath, our Savior also rescued us from bondage to sin and Satan, which means that we are no longer enslaved to the broken patterns of sin. Our default mode has been reset, or as Jesus would say, we were born again. It makes me think of what C.S. Lewis wrote in his legendary tale, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, specifically The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, where you might remember when Aslan, the lion figure who so portrays Jesus so beautifully, where he will take the place of the son of Adam, of a young man by the name of Edmund, who was guilty of breaking the law and was going to be laid onto the stone table and have his life given, but Jesus, that Jesus figure Aslan, will take the son of Adam's place And when he dies there on the stone table, breathing his last, it's not just that the sons of Adam, Edmund, is freed from the just demands of the law as depicted in the stone table. Remember the image is the stone tablets, the law that Moses had held in his hand. It's that simultaneously the eternal winter, the reign of the evil regime, begins to lose its grip on creation as the stone table itself is broken. So that that son of Adam will no longer be placed upon it again. Because Christ has paid for it once and for all. And the power, the curse of the law is broken so that I will not be judged by it. But also its power and control, its grip on creation began to loosen. Aslan famously said in that moment, I love how C.S. Lewis wrote it. He said, if the witch knew the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery, is killed in a traitor's steed, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. This is the reality that we are invited into. This is the grace that we are meant to experience each and every day. My friends, I think that's something we're celebrating today.